Welcome to the Read Optional Podcast. We are taping this on a Wednesday afternoon. I'm joined on the line by Sam Monson from PFF. Sam, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm doing good. I will say keen-eyed viewers of this program may notice that my face looks a bit different. It may look, Sam, you may see something is going on with my face. I was not attacked by a cat. I was not in some kind of cool brawl. Um, I fell over at a wedding. Um, yeah. Is not something that I am unknown for doing. Uh, embarrassing for everyone involved. Although I was petting a dog. This was not some kind of drunken escapade on a dance floor, unfortunately. Have you had any wild wedding evenings that have led to some kind of facial injury? Uh, I don't believe I have ever injured a face at a wedding. No, no, I don't think so. I'm, I'm kind of disappointed, though, that it, it was... You know, or, or either early in the proceedings, or just minus the the introduction of alcohol. It was simply malcoordination. That's that's much less interesting. Oh, there was serious alcohol involved. This was at the very <laughs> end of the evening, saying goodbye to a dog. Okay, um, and I okay. fell into a face of slate. Well, I I put my face into a pool of slate. Unusual. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we are going to do some bowl predictions for the NFL season. That is what we're here to do. We're going to go back and forth and just pick out some predictions we have. We'll have some fun and um, see if either of us is crazy crackers and, and maybe just maybe some of them will turn up and be be correct. And then we can look really smart in six months when our producers can tweet. That's out. the dream. That's <laughs> the dream. Um, do you want to go first? Should I hand it to you. You're the guest here. Would you like to to put up your first bowl prediction for the season? Sure. Um I'm now confused as to how bold you now have to be in order for this to still qualify because, you know, way back at the start of, I guess, the the team building portion of the offseason, I was kind of quietly confident and really liked what the Eagles were doing and were saying for quite a while that, hey, Philadelphia could end up winning the division from Dallas, you know, and and that was something that definitely wasn't on the cards early in the offseason. It's only, I think they've moved now level as a betting favorite with Dallas. But the closer we get to the season, I think they're going to end up overtaking them. I think they're going to end up being the favorite for the division. So now you might have to go further for it to be bold. You might have to say, well, forget the division. Now we've got to start talking about the Eagles as real Super Bowl contenders. And I think that's on the cards. It's definitely out there. It's definitely bold at that point. But they've they've got such a good roster on both sides of the ball. Really, if Jalen Hurts takes any kind of step forward at quarterback, like the Eagles have the capacity to challenge, I think, the best teams in the NFC and really do make a push to get to a Super Bowl. If they make the playoffs again, if they win the division, I don't think it's going to look the same as it looked last year when they ran up against one of the real contenders in the Bucs and just, just looked outclassed. And they kind of rolled over and had their bellies rubbed in that game. Defensively, mm. it was genuinely one of the most embarrassing game plans at like a high caliber DC or someone who was, who was someone who was getting head coaching tips and job interviews to run that out against Tom Brady was beyond confusing. And I just don't think he didn't have the pieces to run anything that he wanted to run. He felt comfortable with you drop Jordan Davis in the middle of the defense. And it is one of those Constantino effects where it feels like it will unlock everything they really want to be rather than that bizarrely bland, passive, uh, type of defense they were running last year. And I know people point to their zone coverage numbers and kind of where they modulated through the season. I think they became a bit more man-heavy later in the year. But it wasn't even that level of passivity. It's it's a lack of doing anything that's fun or creative or crazy. You know, you, you watch the Cardinals and they're regularly bad on defense, but at least they're trying stuff. It's like they know their players are bad, so they tried to hide them with goofy 
uh, rotations and coverages. The Eagles just did nothing last year um, in any way of intrigue. I guess the the core questions for them, right, are defensive front. That has to be just utterly dominant. And I think they've got the pieces to be with a down five as good as it gets. And then quarterback. And it's also, mm. what do they want to run with that quarterback? Is it the smash mouth spread, two tight ends, spread everyone out and then smash it down your throat style of hurting an offense they ran at the end of the year? Is it the early one where they were crazy pass heavy on early downs? Is it somewhere in the middle? And frankly, I don't think Hurts has to take that much of a leap forward. I think things are going to be so wide open for them because of how good the line is and how scary AJ Brown is, which is just a piece that was missing, that I don't think he actually has to be much better. He just has to punish defenses a little bit more in some crucial areas of the field, which is mostly the middle of the field where he kind of gets terrified. Yeah, it's really, for him to get a bit better, the, the only time it really matters, I think, is in the playoffs. You know, they'll they'll be good, and they'll have a good offense. Like last season, they were a top 10 offense in EPA per play, in large part because of Jalen Hurts. You know, not necessarily because he's a great passer, but because he's able to add 800 rushing yards and a bunch of touchdowns on the ground, that, that kind of raises the floor of everything on that offense. So where it gets important, though, is when you run into the playoffs and you start facing teams that have a good team as well and an elite quarterback, that's when I think Jalen Hurts, you know, needs to take a fairly significant step forward versus a year ago. But yeah, that that defense was the most vanilla defense in the NFL last season. And, you know, if they have pieces now, Jordan Davis, I think N'Kobe Dean could end up being a really important player for them at linebacker um, and, and a real steal of the draft. But they've just added pieces at all three levels. They've got much better personnel this year than they did a year ago. I think the the pieces are in place for both sides of the ball to be good units. And them stealing Chauncey Gardner-Johnson yesterday is just unfair. One of those ones I always say on here, why is the commissioner not allowed to just veto trades, David Stern, <laughs> when it's like, that is so unfair. How is that the best offer available? I can't even remember what it was. It was so minimal. It's like a sixth and a seventh, and you can have our second sixth if it's not very good. It's That is insane that they were able to pull that deal off. And I understand it's, it's contractually based and people don't want to pay Chauncey, they don't know what to pay him as. He's kind of a an individual player. He can play nine different spots, essentially, at, at a decent to high level. I, that to, to, to get that, to get Bradbury, those are the kind of things that like just happen to the Eagles. It's just how he just somehow ends up with tons I mean, of players. The Bradbury one, I think, is such a key example. Like What I love about the Eagles offseason is that every little stage of the team-building process, you know, big money free agent. Well, they went after Hassan Reddick. They added one of those. They nailed the draft process, whether it's Jordan Davis at the top, whether it's N'Kobe Dean later on. Um, then they come back and they get the kind of lower price free agents that are just still out in the market or get cut after the draft. You pick up James Bradbury for nothing because the Giants can't afford to pay him. And then this little period just before cut day, you know, when everybody's trying to juggle the roster and maybe trying to cash in on something that they're not going to be able to keep long-term, they grab a guy like Chauncey Gardner-Johnson. So every little area that's possible to team build this offseason, they've been involved and they've been adding players that you think should be significant uh, contributors to them. I, I just think that's really smart um, roster construction. And the funny thing is you're supposed to only really have one of those, one that's that good, like the A++ one. Right? You're not supposed to get the, the brilliant bargain, the big trade, the, the guy in the draft who is probably going to be unbelievable, but for some reason there were question marks. Even taking Cam Jurgens on the perfect timeline for your mm. unbelievable center is going to go at some point. He steps in. If there's an injury, he steps in. We have the best offensive line in the league. We get someone who was considered right there with Linda Bam as the, as the top center prospect in the draft, depending on what kind of system you run. 
you compare it to the Dolphins who have the exact same timeline of quarterback, not so sure about media hype train begins because you do the giant trade for the big name receiver. You've got some draft assets uh, in the bank to, to go and get the quarterback if you want down the line. And yet the Dolphins didn't stack on top of that Bradbury and Davis and Jurgen yeah. and Hassan Reddick, as you mentioned. The Hassan Reddick one is insane that they they want to play the Fangio five down right now. Go look at their five. It is outrageous the gas they have up for it and their ability to play in basically any different style. Uh, it is basically does come down to, and I hate being the, the part who just goes down to is the quarterback good enough. But this one really is like yeah. the, they have the best roster in the NFL. It's pretty simple. If you go through through the whole roster, it's as good every position group you would put in in your top 10, 12 of any position group, maybe safety we could we could quibble back and forth on. It comes down to the quarterback. And like you said, it's to me, it's not even so much can he play on script in the postseason, because I think you can scheme up ways to, to hide certain guys even in the first couple of rounds of the postseason. I do worry that people think he's a different player as a second phase playmaker than he actually is. I think he does like things predefined. I don't think he loves it when he has to start moving and thinking. And though he can move because he's an unbelievable athlete in space, that's when things just go haywire for him if it's not predefined. I just don't think you can win the postseason anymore if you're a guy who has to just play on time and in rhythm. Yeah, I mean, so that's the thing is it comes down to the quarterback thing in the playoffs. And the reason that's true is when you look at today's NFL like there's so many good teams that also have good quarterbacks, you know, back in the past, you go back a few years, that wasn't necessarily the case. There was a couple of teams that were, that had everything and they were the, the obvious favorites, but other teams had like one or the other, you had a great quarterback, but you didn't have a particularly good team around him, or you had an amazing team and they didn't have the quarterback. Now you're looking at just ev- what everybody has done this off season. There's so many teams where, they have a good roster and a really good quarterback, and you're going to run into those teams in the playoffs. And if you don't have your quarterback playing at that kind of level, it's a huge disadvantage. Like that can offset a ton of little bits of of uh, advantage across the roster. So, you know, teams that don't have as complete a roster as the Eagles, but they have a quarterback playing at an all pro level, that might offset the entire advantage the Eagles have from like, two down to 53 and it is going to come down to how well Hertz can play all right then my first prediction which now I, now i'm questioning how bold have i been <laughs> I'm so sure um, and it, it dovetails nicely with your eagles picks your eagles pick was the eagles winning the super bowl did we get that up front i guess yeah let's let's, yeah, let's go, go with bigger go home yeah uh, i'm i got mike mccarthy as fired before week eight Wow, um, <laughs> and it ties. And you know, if the Eagles are a juggernaut out the gate, and the Eagles are six and two, seven and one, the Cowboys sputtered to start the season with the offensive line issues, which we can dig through. Um, they have the ready-made replacements, and that's the big thing. There is, it's not going to be even necessarily the thing of oh, will Sean Payton come down, from, you know, from the booth or wherever he's hanging out? I'm not even sure where he is at the moment. Um, you know, it will just be to call Dan Quinn into the office or Kellen Moore, probably Quinn if the defense is good. And you just do the move to make a move to say you've made a move. And that would that would be what it is when the reality is that the they had such an unbelievable roster that the, the key is quality depth in the NFL, right? It's like you need a great quarterback and quality depth. So the as the Jenga pieces get pulled apart by suspensions and injuries and all that kind of stuff, you at least still have, like they always had, two of the best pass rushes in the world on the field at all times, no matter who was injured or suspended between Gregory Lawrence and Parsons. And they've just lost elements of that, right? You lose Cooper to offset Gallup and Lamb. You lose uh, Randy Gregory. The offensive line, which 
is one of the funniest things in all of football discourse that it was just considered good forever, even when it became average and then became bad. It was just, it must be good because it was good during the, the early Prescott run. They were already in big trouble with a lack of depth there. So to have the Tyron Smith injury come down and to have to move to Smith is just a massive, massive concern. And if that's not right and the offense isn't clicking early in the year the way it did last year, there will be some kind of defensive regression. There always is. Unless you have Hall of Famers everywhere, your defense regresses when you were the best or in the top three in the league. And all of a sudden you start seeing maybe a three and four start to the season, maybe even worse than that. I, I don't know. I'm just not bullish on the Cowboys this year. No, I'm not either. I, I think I, in this offseason where everybody else was getting better, they didn't. And, and it almost felt like it's a kind of permanent problem for Dallas that they seem surprised by things that they should have had like two years down the line, you know, foresight on. So it's like, oh, wow, all of a sudden Amari Cooper's contract is problematic. It's like, well, okay, but this isn't new. Like, why is this shocking to you? Like, I get being a little bit upset that Amari Cooper isn't necessarily justifying the amount of money you're paying him. On the other hand, A, he's not the biggest culprit of that on the offense. And B, once you suddenly started seeing this flurry of receiver contracts this offseason, that deal immediately started to look an awful lot more palatable. Like, you go to the start of the pre or the start of the offseason, Dallas are looking at that deal going, it's a lot of money for Amari Cooper. He's not playing at that kind of level. A couple of months later, the Browns are looking at that and going, we got a steal. Like this guy's getting paid peanuts relative to all the deals that just got signed. You know, Tyreek Hill getting $30 million a year instead of 20. So, you know, they they let Amari Cooper go. And I think they should have been able to keep him if they'd worked at it before now. They end up making a complete balls of the Randy Gregory thing. And he leaves because of some kind of cross wires or, you know, last second whatever it was, messing around with his contract. He bails signs in Denver. Um, and just little bits and pieces across the board, they, they've losing players or trying to stay where they are, trying to uh, make lateral moves while everybody else is making these giant swings to get better, whether it's huge moves for quarterbacks, whether it's bringing in you know elite number one wide receivers, whatever it is, everybody else is going forward and Dallas is just spinning its wheels. And I think you're right. Like those things, I don't think they're better in any area. And maybe they might be able to stay level with the receiver group, but Gallup's hurt, so it's going to take a while for him to get back and realize that. Um, but the other issue is, I think the one thing we've learned from Dak Prescott's career so far is that I don't think there's a quarterback in the NFL who is more vulnerable to changes in his environment in any capacity than Dak Prescott. When you mess with his receiver core, when you mess with his offensive line, when you mess with the play calling – any element of that and Dak Prescott's play immediately nose dives and he doesn't become bad, but the difference between like Dak playing at the peak of his powers with everybody around him, you know, in really good shape and not, I think is a pretty significant one. And you're right. I think if the Eagles start well, it's going to be tough for Dallas to play anything like as well as they were playing last year, certainly at the start of the season. It's a strange one where I can't figure out what they think their timeline is. It's like it was last season, basically, was the crescendo of everything. They got I don't think they know. Like they just seem to work on a, a kind of permanent basis of we have a lot of talent. We should win the Super Bowl. Like, what's the problem? You know? And it's like obviously the issue is that Zeke didn't have the ball as much. You know, <laughs> we gotta keep we gotta get back and establish Zeke again. 
And they have that strange team building philosophy, which they say openly, which is we pay the stars. And they've almost played themselves because they've been so good at drafting. Yes. And the, the Cooper trade was a decent one that then you end up looking around going, we don't have any cash to pay all the stars. And yeah. when you, we've paid all the stars in the past, we ripped out the depth of our roster. And so now we couldn't pay our stars. Where's the depth? Dallas is, I think, their single biggest flaw as a, a sort of institutional team building um, entity is that they reward themselves for having drafted correctly in the first place, right? They've actually done a pretty good job of drafting, but the problem is at some point those guys on the rookie contracts come due for their second contract, and Dallas looks at that and they go, well, we like that player coming out. He's been pretty good for us, so he deserves a second contract. Whereas other teams look at that and say, okay, he's been pretty good for us, but now he wants to get paid like one of the top five players in the NFL and he's not worth that. So we got to cut bait. We got to let him go. Dallas don't let generally their free agents walk. They pay them. They end up giving them the second contract. And there's just, there's only so many times you can do that before you have too many of those second contracts and you just don't have the cash. And again, this is why, you know, teams operate on this sort of two or three year foresight plan where you can see the deals that are coming up, you can see the money you're going to have to be, you know, tied up in this guy or this guy. And you should have line of sight as to who the, you know, the tough decisions that you need to make one or two years in advance so that you're not stuck in this situation where you look at the off season, you're like, Oh crap, we don't have the money to pay these guys. We're going to have to trade away Amari Cooper. The Jalen Smith one's a great example. I think he has like seven, $8 million in dead cap money on the Cowboys yeah. this year, which meant base. That's why they had to decide between Dalton Schultz and Amari Cooper. And how they, that's one again of, like you said it perfectly, they they pat themselves on the back. We did a great job. No one wanted to take a gamble on Jalen Smith. We did it. He was so-so for a couple of years, probably his, his reputation outpaced his play because of the storyline. That's when you have to look at each other and go, okay, we, we got decent value out of that. Let's all move along because this is probably going to be play who does not age well, given what we, we know about his medical records, of which we have access to more than anyone else. We can do GPS, yeah. all that stuff. Instead, they give him a, a silly contract, can't get out from under it, have to get rid of him when, when the, that injury stuff bites and the athleticism wanes. And all of a sudden, they have to decide between keeping the wide receiver or the tight end rather than having both and being in great shape. And obviously, the other elephant in the room is the Zeke Elliott contract. And it's again, it's a case of them doing business emotionally rather than, you know, analytically. And there were, I know that there were people in the Dallas Cowboys building, you know, within that organization that knew this was going to be a problem, that didn't want to give Zeke the contract. And this was, remember, when they gave him that contract, that was about as good as you're going to get from Zeke. That, like, that was Zeke playing really well, looking like one of the best running backs in the NFL. You know, the guy that's been the last couple of years hasn't been playing at that level at all. But even at that time, there were people in that building that didn't want to do that deal, but knew that it was going to happen. <laughs> They're like, <laughs> we are fighting the good fight. We're trying to convince them not to give him this deal, but it's going to get done. Like, you know, you know, Jerry Jones is going to go out there and just open up the checkbook because they drafted Zeke. Zeke is good. We like Zeke. Therefore, Zeke gets the money. That's the funniest thing about Jerry's reputation in terms of him being the GM of the team, which is obviously comical, is that he doesn't run the draft. That's where they're at the best. He does have a direct line to the players, which is always problematic in negotiations. And then the agents just call him directly. They do not work through a management structure at Dallas. They call yeah. Jerry. They say, we're thinking this much. He says, great. I love to pay stars. Let's get the deal done. And then maybe they'll wiggle through some kind of how does it impact the cap down the line and try and structure it in some way that helps them get some cap relief. But that is the big danger of having him as the head honcho is that people just go direct to him. He ends up signing bonkers deals to, to guys he likes. 
Yeah, it's it's there's not enough detachment from you know the emotional stuff. Like I I saw Andrew Brandt recently on Twitter was talking about how you know he lost a lot of um, or ruined a lot of relationships because he used to he used to be an agent. He used to you know work with the players. He used to be friends with a lot of these guys, and then he became kind of the cap guy for the Packers. And they all thought it would be great. You know, we'll just go, we'll, we'll talk, we'll get this deal done. It'll be simple. Um, but he was the guy that had to, to to break it to them that, you know, you're not worth as much as you think you're worth, or you're not worth to us as much as you think you're worth. Therefore, you know, this is what we're prepared to go. And if that's not good enough, we're going to have to let you walk, you know, we're going to have to deal you or whatever it is. And he was saying that, you know, he'd lost a lot of friendships that way. Jerry Jones doesn't want to lose those friendships or he doesn't want to make those you know, those tough sort of comment. He doesn't want to have those tough conversations with people. If he likes a player, he's going to figure out a way of making it work rather than saying, you know, I'm sorry, but we don't want to give you this money. Yeah. He, he says yes. And then he shuts the door, makes everyone else figure out the mechanics of how actually yeah. works. you bring Jerry as some Johnny Walker blue, maybe a cigar or two. Up <laughs> and all of a sudden you've got yourself $80 million a year as a running back in 2022, uh, which is just outrageous. Quickly on Dak, um, what you said there, I agree with that when the environment's not perfect, I think he's a perfectionist so much. He's so Manning-like in his approach to everything he does. Everything they do is very uh, systematized and everything they do is very robotic, which again belies kind of some of his reputation. And a lot of that was since the the serious injury and him not being quite as athletic in the pocket as he was before. And certainly in terms of breaking it, um, now he just likes to kind of undulate and move around to create plays rather than kind of taking off unless it's a, a design thing. They now have a guy who he's going to have to put out many more fires than he has done before. And he's going to have to elevate again as a second phase player. Will he be willing to not just manning his way down the field as they did? Even when in their best last year, the tempo was really high. All the plays were working. They had some really funky, cool stuff. And then just the most traditional stuff possible. They fused big personnel with spread stuff really interestingly and he just ran it like a machine right and they just stomped down the field on people when you have issues at receiver getting open everyone's playing 2d split safety coverages and you're probably not running the ball as well because your line isn't as good you have to be able to move around and create and be willing to stand in and maybe take a shot to deliver a big throw downfield and i do have questions about Dak with what's happened with him before and how he played last year and particularly when he came back from the calf issue of whether he wants to be that kind of guy anymore who will move around and kind of create out of structure all by himself. Yeah, and the the Tyler Smith thing at left tackle could be really problematic. I mean, Tyler Smith was a very raw prospect coming out at left tackle. He hasn't played a left tackle yet. He's been in, in a guard the whole time through preseason. And even then, he's been, you know, pretty good as a run blocker, a little bit less so as a pass protector. The, the drop-off, you know, from Tyron Smith or another capable starter to Tyler Smith is potentially huge. And again, it's because it's in pass protection, I think is the most critical problem there. You don't want Dak Prescott's left tackle to be a potential liability, you know, when you're trying to keep everything else above water and when you're relying on Dak to elevate the level of the receivers that are going to be different of the offensive line generally that could just place a ton of stress on the entire offense unless Tyler Smith is able to take a huge leap very quickly. All right, then it's over to you. What's your second prediction? Um, I have been a little bit down on the Bengals um, 
I think a little against the grain. You know, everyone Super Bowl team, um, they had a great offseason. I'm I'm not gonna argue that at all. I think they what they did with their offensive line in both recognizing, you know, a lot of teams get to the Super Bowl and they think, oh, we're just like we're a piece away. You know, this is why this is why we failed. We had this one guy and now we're gonna get back there and we'll win it this time. But it doesn't work like that, right? And I think the Bengals did a really good job of recognizing that, hey, we overachieved last year. The offensive line stinks. And if we don't improve the offensive line, we're not getting back to the Super Bowl next year or because we just don't have that unit. So they went out there and they completely overhauled an offensive line and they did it without spending a ton of money, which I think is really smart business. I think that great recognition, roster construction, all those things. Um, but Baltimore wasn't in contention last year because they got so badly injured that they just got taken out of it. They were the number one seed in the AFC before the injuries really started to hit and they got dragged down. Okay. Cleveland this year, you know, they were a bit of a wild card with the Deshaun Watson suspension. I think they're probably out of contention with the length of that suspension, but they're at least dangerous because they're such a good roster. Pittsburgh with the way their quarterbacks have played in preseason might actually be better than people thought they would be. And the rest of the AFC is just a murderous row. So Cincinnati might not make the playoffs again, let alone the Super Bowl. And the big thing for them is, is I think defensively, no one on this podcast, on this green earth, other than maybe Mrs. Anarumo has written more glowing things about Lou Anarumo than myself over here. But I will confess to everyone that the stuff they did last season was not a sustainable thing that you would say, okay, we'll be good again, will we? Because it's not like numerically they were blowing people away. They had really Mm. creative one-off plans for specific quarterbacks, which is a very good part of coaching. You go through the roster, you're not exactly saying, oh, look, this is a, a whole bunch of all pros. They got unbelievable performance out of Trey Hendrickson. They did some cool things with him. Jesse Bates is obviously a stud. I think Von Bell is one of the best matchup move pieces in the league. But it's not like they're just overflowing with talent where you can just roll out there and you play four down and go and you're just clubbing everyone over the head. You know, it's not the Bills. You know, the Bills are are swallowing (laughs) all the good players in the world. You get a couple of injuries here. You get a couple of game plans wrong. It's not as if Luana Rua hasn't had some awful game plans in the past. When you do that, that high stakes, we're going to completely overhaul what we do week to week to try and offset someone. You're going to get it wrong many times as they have done and did do last season. So to me, it would be silly to pencil them in and say that that defense will be league average or better. I think there's a chance they they have good players, but I don't think you would be uh, counting on it. No, and I think the other thing is the offense might not be as good as people expected to be because last season, I mean, last season it wasn't as good as we thought it was. You know what I mean? Like it looked great because it was a bomb from Joe Burrow to uh, Jamar Chase every two minutes and they were in really high leverage situations and they won a bunch of games with those plays, but they really were over-reliant on those explosive plays. And if you look at, you know, Joe Mixon, I think averaged four yards per carry, something like that, three of which came after contact. Like it was three yards in a cloud of dust and then falling forward for the extra yard. Um, The Bengals as an offense ranked 14th in EPA per play, but they had a ton of explosive plays that were able to offset some of that. So I think we kind of, you're right to focus on the defense. I think that is the more concerning area of the team. But I think across the board, the stuff that was happening last year is kind of unsustainable. I think we sort of give the offense a pass because they did make the offensive line better. We know Burrow and Chase are great. We know T. Higgins is a great complimentary piece. Mixon is a good running back as a a bell cow guy. And we think, well, that offense is going to be great again. 
but I think it didn't, it wasn't as good as it looked last year. And that the ways that it, it sort of hid how not average, but the way that it hid the gap between how good it actually was and how good it looked was by those explosive plays, which we just know are very volatile in terms of sustainability one year to the next. And this is why I'm happy to have Sam here because he's preaching to the converted. I've been banging this drum for a long, long time that that offense by design was fundamentally broken. It was one of the worst tailored offenses in the league to its talent. And just in general, they didn't sequence anything. They telegraphed their run plays. The reason Joe Mixon was getting swamped to the line of scrimmage and they have the, the crates up is they had about four formations they ran from. Whenever they were under center, they were running the ball. It was wide zone. And then they would try and do the Patriots quick set. Remember Brady, every time they did no huddle for three seasons, it was outside zone to try and steal a yard. They telegraphed their plays. They had the best quarterback in the league maybe for a season. And then Randy Moss playing outside. Mm. And that bailed them out of broken things by design and then they had three really good receivers and if you include the tight end in there that that is an unusual amount of talent to just drop with a special quarterback to bail you out of just bad construction that's not going to work again in the second season that's just there will be regression to the mean people will work more over to chase you have this offensive line issue where they are better than they were and the big thing i liked was that they changed the profile of the guys they got and so i think that burrow just in general protection, they are better players, but they're also guys who can hang around longer. These are kind of latch and shuffle type linemen, particularly Capper and, and Karras, is that's how they pass protect in general. So I think he can hang around and move around more, which is where I think Burrow can do some of his, his best work. But they need to, and I've not heard any reporting from anyone that they're having some kind of overhaul. They went from the LSU offense to the grab bag of Shanahan McVay stuff. There has to be either some middle ground or some kind of new iteration of what their offense actually looks like from a from a macro sense of how all the pieces fit together rather than saying let's run 10 plays because joe likes these 10 plays and we'll just throw it down to chase if no one's open yeah and i, I think there's it's going to be a lot harder for chase in year two like he surprised people as a rookie in a way that i can't think of too many wide receivers in the past the, the way he won was the way he was dominant was surprising to people when you and it's funny because I was taught we went to Bengals practice the other day when they were um, when they were had the joint practices with the Rams. And it is different looking at Chase on tape versus in person and live. And I think that was why he was such a sort of shocking dominant force last season. Everybody liked Jamar Chase's college tape, but I don't think that many people were like, this dude is special. He's an absolute monster. He's going to come in and dominate. And a lot of the the people that kind of criticized him as a prospect were like, well, what is special here? You know, he's good at everything, but I don't see anywhere this kind of special stuff. And I think when you watch his tape, even in the NFL, it, it doesn't look as sort of dominant and explosive as it really is. And then you see him in person and it's somehow different. It does look different. Like you you watch him and the rest of the Bengals receivers who remember is a good group. T Higgins, uh, Tyler Boyd, they had guys there that, that are, perfectly good NFL players and it looks completely different when Jamar Chase is running like he is somehow different in the flesh and I think every single corner that went up against him last year had that happen to them unfortunately during the play you know like Marlon Humphrey I think is the best example that guy got absolutely wrecked by Chase in a way that Chase didn't do anything special this was nothing that he wouldn't have been expecting from tape but it was just different when it's happening right in front of you versus when it's happening on the screen over there. And I don't think that's going to happen to everybody this time. You know, they're going to know 
that actually this guy is way more explosive, way quicker, you know, way more difficult to handle physically than I thought he was when I was just going through his tape. And they had to have hit on the highest. You guys will have these numbers because the nerds over in your Willy Wonka factory of, of football stats will figure out who since Randall Cunningham connected on the most go routes in the league. They had to have been in the top five in the last decade or so. I, I'm sure if I, if I asked them to go back through those numbers for me, they would say, yeah, no one ever did it in back-to-back years. They didn't right. do it once. No one, it's not some magical, this idea of them having a magical connection, that is like option route stuff, or it's Brady and Gronk, right? And it's over five years because they just know the exact landmark, the exact precision of where to put the ball because they'll get there in the timing of the play. Just throwing it down the field and having someone moss someone consistently, there is no way that is sustained year over year on that specific outside the numbers route where a safety safeties will cheat over there people will do creative things with coverage to try and block that off i just don't think that's feasible you're gonna have to find a new way to use him which would probably be what we saw in the playoffs where it's more yak stuff and underneath and then it's a question of does he have the special speed the tyreek hill speed as people are getting more depth in their defense yeah i mean even just looking at explosive plays you know which is sort of 15 plus yard plays he had one fewer of those last year than Devonte adams but he had like 36 fewer targets you know what i mean like he's he was at that kind of level in terms of rate that just nobody else was at okay i'll we'll move on to my pick um and now this one is really lukewarm compared to um <laughs> some of the other ones we've had i have that malik willis will take ryan Tannehill's starting job sooner than anyone expects which i just threw that in there because i realized i hadn't said a uh a designated time and the titans will miss the playoffs um the colts are probably the favorites in the south now when you're right if i went through his uh, bookmaker yeah i think so so that like that part i think has been that's like it's like the Eagles thing. I started off thinking that kind of quite early because Tennessee was like Dallas and they didn't really do anything this offseason other than make sideways moves. But the closer I think we get to the season, the more I think everybody else is coming to that conclusion as well, that Tennessee is probably the second favorite now rather than the favorite. What did you make of Willis in the preseason? I thought he was a lot like... So if it's funny. We get to the preseason. There's some guys that are different than college, and that's kind of what everybody's looking for, right? Is, oh, wow, we got all these new players. And ultimately, you end up saying, well, okay, yeah, that, that's the same guy we thought he was. You know, that's the guy we saw at college the last few years, exactly the same player in the NFL. There are different guys. You know, Romeo Dobbs, I think, looks like a different player um, in the NFL. But Malik Willis looks like Malik Willis, and uh, good and bad. You know, it the physical talent is insane like his he's got one of the best arms in the nfl right away immediately he has one of the best rushing threats in the nfl like just as a pure athlete he's not lamar jackson but he's closer to lamar jackson than jalen hurts is and jalen hurts rushed for you know a bunch of yards and touchdowns last season so i think as a as an athlete as a collection of tools malik willis is about as good as anybody in the nfl but he doesn't play within the structure of the offense at all. Like it, it doesn't function. So anything like you could, every time you're watching these preseason games and like any time he pulled the ball down, started running around, even if he made a play, it was just making Mike Vrabel progressively more irate on the sideline. Like Malik Willis would pull it down, rush for 15 yards and it would cut to Vrabel on the sideline. Who's looking like, like he just, you know, fumbled the ball away. Like he was just getting so annoyed that he wouldn't just stay in the pocket, work through a progression and, you know, play quarterback, not, not play athlete, play quarterback. And okay. He did it sometimes, but 
he's just not doing that at any kind of acceptable rate in the NFL. And, you know, you look at Traylon Burks tape, for example, Burks heading into that last preseason game, he had like one catch for four yards, but he'd been open behind the defense in every single game. But by the time like the ball should be in the air, Malik Willis is busy spinning in a pirouette and doing something different. Like he, Traylon Burks wasn't given the chance to look good in preseason because of the way Malik Willis is playing. So I I love what he can be long-term. I love the physical potential. I love like everything about him physically, but I think he's so far away from being able to go out there and run like any kind of NFL offense. Now, if you want to sort of build one in the, like the skunk works division, you know, like a, here's what a Malik Willis offense would look like if he has to play later in the season. Okay. I think there's enough, just enough physical gifts there that you can definitely build something that will be functional and um, can be dangerous, but it's going to need that. Like, I don't think you can bench Ryan Tannehill or Tannehill gets hurt and Malik Willis can come in and run that offense. Like it's going to need a wholesale changes for him to come in and start. What's interesting is how much they have said you are running the traditional wide zone then boot yeah. off in preseason. Because I really thought when they took him and then they had Burks, I thought, okay, this is interesting. They are going to do some kind of wholesale rebuild over two, three years, somewhat in the background where they move to true either, not necessarily the Raven star, because I don't think he's, Lamar is a burner and he is more of a slippery in space athlete. So I didn't think it'd be quite a north south um, offense as the Ravens is, but a true spread option. We're here for the RPO world. Let's go get it. Um, whereas they've said, no, we want you to play quarterback from the pocket and we want you to turn you back to the defense and turn around and reset and rescan. And these are things that are in complete alien concepts to him. And it's not the undersender thing. Guys can pick that up in a week. They usually pick it up doing draft prep, you know, before they even get to camp. But it is the having to scan and, and reassess the field, particularly as they move and rotate on the back end. That stuff is so far away. There was a play where he changed the protection. I felt like a proud father. I was I was very <laughs> impressed with him. He beat the zero pressure. He brought extra guys in. That is, to me, a successful preseason because I did not think he would be even that far along where they said, hey, go and figure it out. And if it's a bomb, it's a bomb. We don't care. You're not playing in year one. And I think it's going to be such a struggle for them in year one and so messy that if you can advance just a little bit, even to them to get just a game plan down, where they're like bleep it the guy can go make plays and now he's changing protections and he's being able to hand the ball off appropriately from under center you know mike vrabel the thing about mike vrabel is he's going to get some criticism this year because they're probably going to be bad i think although the defense is pretty good when we should really acknowledge what a magical job he's done for the last two years it's yeah. been pretty insane particularly last season when they were just all over the place particularly on offense that being that competitive Part of me thinks that he's just going to say bleep it at some point during the season. Say, let's just see if he can just go make some plays. Because I think they're going to have such a hard time playing within the structure of that offense anyway. I think they'll be clubbing their head against the walls. With that line, with these new brands of defenses, that they're just not on the right path for what an offense should look like versus this style of defenses. The thing you can do is throw the chaos agent on the field who doesn't know himself what the structure of the offense is supposed to be. Yeah, I think I think Mike Rabel might be the next kind of Mike Tomlin in terms of a guy that's just consistently able to get better performance and better wins than his team dictator says that he should. Um, but I do think that actually Rabel will be a thing that prevents Malik Willis from being on the field more than he is sort of willing to embrace that. I, I don't think Rabel – I think the fact that Willis isn't playing, you know, within the structure of the offense will drive Rabel nuts. And he – 
Like, I don't think you can possibly turn to a guy like that, even if things aren't going well during the season. Um, but I, I do think that it's a difficult, it's a difficult balance to try and manage for the Titans versus because what you don't want to happen is you take a unique talent like Malik Willis and then you just try and turn him into a prototypical quarterback. Like that's why Michael Vick wasn't as great as Michael Vick could and should have been, is because they just went in there and said, run the West Coast offense. And then they were like, okay, yeah, I understand you're a freakish athlete. So what we'll do is we'll like build in a random bootleg every now and again, you know, and that will be that will be our nod to you being a unique super athlete. Like, I mean, if Michael Vick was given the kind of offense, not the exact kind of offense, but like the the attention, if someone had built Michael Vick an offense the way they built Lamar Jackson an offense, we could be talking about one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play the game. Um, you know, leaving aside the years he spent in jail for the dog stuff but he never got that they just sort of said try and be a real nfl quarterback this is what you need to do um but you also need like you can't be just an athlete in the nfl like you need some level of nfl processing and nfl uh structures in order to be able to take advantage of the stuff that you can do that's unique so for the titans you got this guy in willis who's you know right up there in terms of all-time unique freaky athletes and but you need to get him closer to to an nfl offense than where he is right now and i don't know if there's a good way of doing that without sort of looking like you're trying to michael vick him and saying hey this is what we run figure out how to run this otherwise you know we're not doing any of it like you can probably work on an offense in the background but i think in order to get him where he needs to be you probably need to kind of drill the basic fundamental stuff into him in a way that doesn't look like it's tremendously insightful. That's the really difficult part of development in the NFL and why people don't do development things in the NFL. They obviously do on the margins, but it's why you just go and try and sign or draft a better player because it is impossible to spend three years in the NFL building a new offense in the background, right? You just, you want, you don't have the reps anymore. Yeah. Uh, but like you said, that is this, the most difficult thing about developing him is no matter what system you build, if you build in the perfect Lamar style system, there's still timing in the Greg Roman system. They still have, I mean, every route they've run has like four options on it. So you're still reading against air and trying to figure out the rhythm of that thing with specific receivers. That's the stuff he has to learn. I don't know if it's best to get him to learn that in a more functional, traditional offense, and then you can bring back in all kind of the RPO stuff and particularly the the running and movement stuff, whether it would be better if they had built in a um, Rogers-style, LaFleur-style stuff they've done in Green Bay, which is a ton of RPO stuff horizontally that then could become running with uh, Malik rather than just pop passes and the running back going the other way as it is with Rogers. I'm not so sure. I'm interested they decided to, to say, Let's go with the put all the pro stuff on his plate, almost Mac Jones style. Hey, you go figure it out and come back to us in week nine, week ten, and then tell us what you like. It's a, it's a that does scream very Vrabely football guy to say go go figure out a pro offense. Yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult generally that you just don't have the time anymore to to develop a quarterback. You don't have the time to develop any quarterback, let alone a quarterback that's so f- completely divorced from like actual NFL concepts and offenses and systems that you need to teach him all that stuff before you even develop him. Like, I don't, I, I'm so I'm kind of, I'm almost as good as he was in the preseason. He was so fun to watch. I'm kind of concerned about like how he can, how does he get from where he is now to being like a capable NFL starter? Because we know the things he needs to work on. He knows the things he needs to work on. Variable knows the things he needs to work on. 
I don't know where the time and reps comes from to do that unless it's just, you know, off season spent like spending an entire off season hitched to Jordan Palmer. And then the first we see of it is like next training camp and next preseason. And it's like, Oh wow, actually he's a totally different guy now. Now we've moved somewhere, but it's almost like that kind of development has been outsourced in the NFL to these personal quarterback coaches or personal position coaches, because you no longer have the time to, to do that with a guy. And that was the Josh Allen path, right? As he went away and did it yeah. all the offseason. Then he got back with the coaching <laughs> staff and they all figured out, why are we running the wrong offense for our quarterback who's bad in college? Then we brought his college playbook to the NFL. Why don't we give him an offense that works for himself? So maybe that's the two-year path, man, as you go away and you work with a private guy and then you figure out a kind of bespoke offense with however far you are along with what the Titans would want to run versus what you can physically do and, and be creative with him. That That would seem like the path. Yeah. Um, so, so that's you uh, shitting all over my, my hot take. Um, <laughs> A little bit. <clears throat> do, do you have any others? Did we go two or three? Um, I think so. I have a few. Those are my two re- reasonably okay. strong ones. Let's go then I have a fire. few. I like this. Let's go. I have a few that I was thinking about. One, I think Atlanta's offense might actually be like a top half of the NFL type of unit, um, whereas a lot of people think they'll stink because they traded away. Obviously, Matt Ryan. The Tua thing might be legit. Like he might actually have just needed a viable platform at any point in his NFL career so far to look pretty good. Um, and then this might be the worst defense that Bill Belichick has ever had under him. And I mean that literally in his entire coaching career, like New York Giants, Belichick, Browns, Belichick, Patriots, Belichick. This defense might be awful. Wow. Okay. That's just a lot to process <laughs> Rattle through these. First of all, um, the Falcons offense, um, I- I'm not going to accuse them of subscribing to my Substack and then pinching mine. T- I wrote like a 5,000 word screed, Sam, that you won't have bothered to read on, on the-, the return of the pistol to the NFL, basically stealing the Gary Kubiak, Peyton Manning offense, but putting a non-zombied QB in there. Um, <laughs> Arthur Smith, I think, subscribes, man. That's what they rolled out there for for three weeks. Desmond Ritter looks really good, which is like really taking me back. He's so much quicker at getting the ball out and processing than he even was in school, talking of your thing of guys in college versus what they're like when they, they get dropped onto an NFL field. Um, so the Falcons, and when you add in London and Pitts, you just have guys, ball winners. It's, it's pretty easy in the NFL. And, How and matchup guys? problems. Like yeah. London, Pitts, Patterson, you know, out of the backfield, they have a group of guys that are a giant pain in the ass to try and match up with because you don't have anybody on defense that looks like those guys. You're going to have to combat them with either a worse athlete or a smaller body, and that's tough. And their offensive line isn't as bad as I think the maybe the consensus would hold on them. Now there are issues all over the spot, and they have they have no depth. So if they get an injury and they have to start moving people around, they're in all kinds of trouble. But they're pretty solid at three spots, um, which last year was not the case. They were a horror show. For much of last season they could not snap the ball properly in multiple games last season so i like that and i do think the one thing they've done cleverly with the selection of ridder and getting mariota is those are the same guys that is quick processing get the ball out guys and it's guys who are vertical runners so whatever they build in there whenever they feel comfortable moving from one to the other or one guy has a bad week and they want to flip it to the other guy i don't think there will be a major major drop off obviously mario is a pro and a veteran and has been around longer but i think that they're going to have the luxury of just knowing when they feel ready that they yeah. will 
amping up the quarterback spot because the, the, the floor is Mariota and it would only be that, oh, Desmond looks really good and we're just going to keep it rolling with someone who's going to raise the floor a little bit. I also think the level of athleticism at the quarterback position now means they can hide that offensive line a lot more than they could last year. You know, Matt Ryan is at the most statue-like quarterback remaining in the NFL, including Tom Brady, by the way. Like, Brady has a lot more sort of in-pocket mobility and ability to hide an offensive line than Ryan does, who is just going to stand there. Um, and Ryan does not have one of the fastest, you know, average time to throws in the NFL. So he's holding onto the ball a reasonable amount of time and not moving. With Mariota or with Ritter back there, you're going to be able to introduce a ton of moving pockets, you know, rollouts, all this kind of stuff where they are pass protection, but not really. You know, or certainly not to the degree of like, hey, drop back. It's a, a deep pass set. Hold your own and just sort of try and survive. So I think with those guys and with RPOs and stuff, like they're going to be able to make that offensive line's job a lot easier than it was a year ago, even if the talent hasn't necessarily improved. Okay, let's do the Belichick one before I let you get out of here because this is a fascinating one. Um, I've been in these these um, insanely aggressive Patriot group chats now for about six months. <laughs> I used to live in Boston for people who are unaware, so I have some intense group chats coming out of Boston. And the big thing with them for the whole offseason to me was, where are the athletes? They looked really slow at times last season on defense. And it's just sometimes you've got to have a certain degree of athleticism in the NFL. So when they kind of... I don't know what's happening with Hightower. He's retired. He's not retired. It's a very weird situation. They go and get Mac Wilson, who I'm not a huge fan of, but is at least an uber athlete kind of big safety body. You could phrase it that way. I was in for that mini evolution of what Belichick was doing. They look really old school and bad in parts last season, even though they had good defensive production at times. Now he's trying to run this small, slender, mobile defense. And I, I look at the players on the field during the preseason, and I listen to Steve Belichick, who's like, oh, yeah, Raekwon McMillan is going to be our, our big go-to linebacker. I'm like, what is happening there? Raekwon McMillan is in the NFL, and he's going to be the main linebacker for the new-look Patriots defense? Yeah, remember for years, you know, the Patriots would sign all these guys that everybody else thought were bad players. And then somehow in New England's defense, they were put in positions where they didn't, they weren't asked to do the things they weren't good at. And they were put in a position to do things they were good at almost all the time. And you'd get these guys, it's like, oh, look, this guy's turned into a star in the Belichick defense. Like, well, how does this work? How do they keep doing this? And then you look in the last couple of years, they've added a lot of guys who sort of fit that description in terms of a limited player with certain flaws in their game or certain weaknesses, but they're not having the same effect. They're not being put in a position to succeed all the time, or they're not able to hide the weaknesses and they're just not succeeding. Like they're just not winning because of it. So, you know, a guy like Jawan Bentley, I, I love that guy coming out. He's just this classic downhill thumper, but he can barely move in coverage. And, you know, that's quite a big issue in today's NFL. And that's kind of what he is right now. Like he just, He's, he's not able to cut it at that kind of level. A guy like Josh Uche, uber athlete, you know, to your point earlier, um, but a guy that is is a pretty limited in terms of experience and breadth of skills and how he can win as a pass rusher. And he hasn't even been the sort of designated situational guy that's able to bring consistent heat. Same with um, uh, the Chase Winovich before him. So this the, the players that they've been bringing in that sort of uh, fit the bill of the way they've always done it, they're just not doing it anymore, which leads me to suspect that they're not able to hide that level of problem anymore the way that they used to. And you look at like in particular the cornerback group right now, 
Like that that's one of the weakest cornerback rooms I can remember seeing on an NFL roster heading into a season. And that's there, and they're still sort of cutting loose bodies that you're like, well, maybe if he gets back to, you know, full fitness or whatever, he could factor. Like they're getting rid of these guys. So it's like Jalen Mills and Jonathan Jones and maybe the rookie, the Marcus Jones, who's five foot eight and 170 pounds. My corner room is tiny. Obviously, Mills is giant and long. The rest of them, Bryant, Jones, Jones, they, they, these are tiny, tiny. You would have had them as situational players even five, six years ago. It's really, I don't know what their body type is. Their search well, have they seen what's happening in the NFL? It's and. And Mills did have like, you know, he had a good year last year relative to what we expect from Jalen Mills. And maybe that's an example of one of these guys coming in and, and Belichick actually getting the most out of him. On the other hand, if Mills regresses to the guy he was in Philadelphia at any point, you're that's that's a disaster. He was like a, he had a walking target on his back at, for the Eagles secondary. So, I mean, this just looks like a defense that could get absolutely blowtorched in any given game. And, you know, even go deeper back than the corner room that what they had that was special last year was three basically four safeties that they could just deploy in any different ways and they, they would compress so much space with how they would use their safeties and, and doug is still unbelievable that the mccourty cliff is going to come and it will look yeah. like the hightower cliff which is one week you go uh oh we're in massive massive trouble we've built a system designed to get dante downhill early and now we can't do that anymore. How do we fix this? And that will happen with McCourty. And when that happens to your safety, who is basically covering up so much ground because your corner room isn't good enough, that is going to be as ugly as it gets. And it, it might not even be a cliff for McCourty, but I think you can see it coming in terms of he's not what he used to be already, and it's only going to go in one direction. you know. And, and if McCourty can't make up for everybody else, the back end, that's going to be a problem. The only good thing going for that defense would be Christian Barmore, who I think is a is going to be yeah. a superstar. Um, they have to be. This has to be Barmore dominant, Judon as dominant as possible, and th those are two pretty big ifs to just slide into the middle of your defense when you're the defensive wizard of the league. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The major question marks. And I apologize to Pats fans because last week we did like an hour and a half of <laughs> what is going on with the offense because I, I genuinely. No one adores Bill Belichick more than me. I swear to God, adore the man. Think he's an unbelievable footman. Clearly, the best that, that we've had. There is some kind of like midlife football crisis going on with whatever he's decided to do with the offense, and then what he's decided to do with defense. Last year on defense, they played an old school oaky front, completely outdated to the time of the league, and somehow it worked because he's smarter than everyone else. And I understand him saying now I have to evolve this thing, get smaller, slender, quicker. He's just picked bad players, and that's always been his thing. He doesn't, he very rarely picks the good players, unless, like you said, they're off the scrap heap somewhere because he's seen them play in the NFL. And that just that 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 fountain has run out. Yeah. It's it's almost like last year they they sort of they tried to preempt this pivot back to like smash mouth football. And then the offense, they just didn't bother running it because McDaniels went, Well, forget it. I'm not, we're just not doing that. Like, I'm not running with two tight ends all the time because we're not going to win doing that. And then on defense, you're right, they sort of patched it together and got it to work. But then this offseason, they've kind of gone, well, maybe we just jumped too early and it's not going to work. So quick, reverse, like try and get back to something else. Oof. All right. Well, Belichick will end up proving us all wrong. That's the one where we'll be here six <laughs> months to see how he's still on body and we all, we all look buffoonish or he's retiring. That's probably the, the two options with Belichick this year. All right. That'll do it for this edition of the podcast. Sam Monson of PFF. Thank you for joining us. People can go and find your work. PFF. They can listen to the podcast where you do like 
nine hours of programming it seems daily i see it on my feed yeah. it's like three and a half hours on on bengals and i'm like okay this is we're in we're in for, for a long podcast sam thank you for doing this anytime thanks for having me